edition of Beef Monthly. Beef Monthly is designed to provide beef producers with the newest and most up-to-date information that affects their operation sustainability and profitability. This program is made possible by a partnership between Purdue Animal Science and the Indiana Beef Cattle Association. I'm Dr. Ron Lemonager, Professor and Beef Extension Specialist in the Department of Animal Science at Purdue University. We begin this edition with what our audience can expect from the Beef Monthly video podcast. The format of the program is designed to be about 30 minutes in length, and it will go live every third Friday of the month. Each monthly edition of the program will have five primary segments. The first segment is headline news that directly impacts beef producers at the local level. The second segment is geared towards how consumers are reacting to beef and how that affects beef demand and beef consumption. The third segment is tailored towards timely beef production and management tips. The fourth segment is Ask Dr. Ron, where producers can send in a question, and one of those questions will be answered during the program. The last segment will highlight upcoming programs and events that producers can attend to gain more insight into issues of interest to them. Let's begin this edition by talking with Dr. Bruce Lamb. Bruce is not only the current president of the Indiana Beef Cattle Association, but he's also a licensed veterinarian working with the Indiana Board of Animal Health and an Angus breeder from Milford, Indiana. Dr. Lamb, let's start talking about the role of Indiana Beef Cattle Association and what it does for beef producers in the state. The Indiana Beef Cattle Association is a member-driven organization that works on issues that are important to beef producers. In the fall of each year, the membership sits down, uh, establishes uh, resolutions and issues in areas that directly relate to producers in our state. These areas are ag policy, animal health and inspection, marketing, research and education, tax and finance, and natural resources and the environment. Resolutions provide the roadmap in each of these areas and position the beef industry in Indiana will take not only in the state but also in federal legislation, regulations, and issues that affect our producers and our way of life. Secondly, IBCA is the primary contractor to the Indiana Beef Council to use beef checkoff dollars focused on increasing consumer demand for beef products, both nationally and globally. The most recent data shows that producers get $11.20 return for every $1 of, of checkoff investment. That means more money coming back to the producer's pockets because of the beef checkoff. Bruce, what was the motivation for creating the Purdue IBCA partnership to do this monthly video podcast? P producer communications has been a high priority for IBCA, and we have been doing this through the Indiana Beef Magazine five times per year, our electronic beef at a glance newsletter, Annual beef con our annual beef convention, Hoosier Beef Congress, field days, and our winter beef meetings across the state. The use of social media and mobile electronic devices has become the way that more and more people are obtaining information on headline news, new technologies, timely management practices, and upcoming events that make a difference in their people's lives and in their businesses. 
Purdue Animal Science and the Land Grant Mission provide an unbiased third-party information and IBCA has partnered with Purdue on many programs in the past to provide producers with the latest best management uh, based on science. In addition, Animal Science has an established record of creating and producing distance learning opportunities and venues that make this effort possible. The joint venture allows us to expand and reach both IBCA membership and the extension clientele across the state in a convenient format that we think producers will like. This partnership takes advantage of the relationship and strengths of both partners to benefit beef producers across the state. To use the old cliche, it's the right thing to do for the right reason at this time. It is possible that the best information possible on topics that make a difference in the, at the farm level. Our partnership goal is to keep beef producers informed so they can make the best management and financial decisions possible for their operation. Thank you, Dr. Lamb, for You're providing an insightful discussion on our partnership. It's my privilege. In this month's headline news, we will summarize the Animal Rights National Conference, the USDA July Cattle Report, status of trade agreements that impact the beef industry, new research on the beef checkoff and beef quality assurance, and award winners at the 2019 Indiana State Fair. The Animal Ag Alliance, which has most of the animal commodity groups and organizations as members, recently released a report detailing their observations of the National Animal Rights Conference held July 25th through July 28th in Alexandria, Virginia. The event was organized by many of the well-known animal rights activist extremist groups. Animal Agriculture Alliance President and CEO Kay Johnson Smith says animal rights extremists are becoming increasingly aggressive in their efforts to end animal agriculture. Similar to last year's conference, she said that speakers made it very clear their vision is animal liberation, not promoting animal welfare. A key theme of the conference was the desire to create a vegan world by 2026 to save the environment. The July USDA cattle report shows that the inventory of all cattle was unchanged from last year. If we break this broad category down further, we see that the inventory of beef cows and bulls were unchanged, but dairy cow inventory was down 1% since last year. Beef replacement heifers were down 4.3%, while dairy replacement heifers were down 2.4% year over year. Feeder steers over 500 pounds were up 1.4%, while feeder heifers over 500 pounds were up 5.3%. Steers and heifers under 500 pounds were down 0.7%. These inventories were anticipated and contained no real surprises. For the time being, at least, the cattle inventory seems to be pretty stable despite turbulence in international trade agreements. If both domestic and international demand continues at current levels, there will be little pressure on cattle markets to initiate a liquidation phase. If the trade agreements currently being discussed with Canada, Mexico, and China can be resolved in a timely manner, 
we could see expansion in the U.S. cowherd due to increased demand. It's interesting to note that there are two trade agreements that have helped support both beef inventories and beef prices. The first is the agreement with Japan that now allows export of U.S. beef from cattle over 30 months of age. This is the first time since BSE was identified just before Christmas in 2003 that beef from cattle over 30 months of age have had access to that market. The announcement of a second trade deal was released early this month that will hopefully reverse the erosion of U.S. markets in the European Economic Union that has occurred over the last 10 years. The EU has had a protectionistic trade barrier that has limited U.S. access and hopefully this deal will lead to increased market availability. It's estimated that this current trade deal will increase annual beef sales in Europe from $150 million to $420 million per year over the next seven years. New economic research conducted at Cornell University shows there was an $11.91 return to beef producers for every checkoff dollar invested between 2014 and 2018. They concluded that without any demand enhancing activities over this five year period, beef demand would have been 14.3% lower than what we experienced. Results from new research conducted at Colorado State University in partnership with Western Video Markets, they reviewed over 8,800 lot records of steers and heifers sold in nine Western states from 2010 through 2017. Results showed that an average premium of $16.80 per head was paid when beef quality assurance was listed as a management practice. The Livestock Breeders Hall of Fame inducted two new members last week during the Indiana State Fair. Lawrence Duncan, a Hereford breeder and owner of Able Acres located near Wingate, Indiana, and Dan Willoughby, owner and operator of Willoughby Sales and Service, an online livestock marketing company for cattle, sheep, pigs, and goats. Also during the State Fair, four Indiana Beef Cattle Association scholarships totaling $5,000 were given to Katie Kretzmeyer, daughter of John and Christy Kretzmeyer of Fowler, Indiana, Haiti Duncan, daughter of David and Jill Duncan from Wingate, Indiana, Ellie Sennett, daughter of Lance and Margaret Sennett from Waynetown, Indiana, and Kylie McFatridge, daughter of Rob and Christy McFatridge from Otterburn, Indiana. And that's a wrap on this month's Beef Headline News. Keith, from a forage perspective, what are some of the timely management practices that our producers need to be thinking about at this month? I think it's really, really critical that we uh, analyze our forages this particular year, uh, any year really, Ron, it's the best management practice, but it was really hard getting first harvest forages up, and as a result of that, what we have is a very, very mature hay crop or silage crop. Yeah. And as a result, uh, we really need to know what is in that hay so that we can develop that ration properly. Uh, I also think we need to, as always, scout our fields. 
We need to be looking at our pastures really as we move transition into uh, very late summer and, and early fall. It's a good time to uh, think about herbicide application and so for weeds that are a problem in those pastures and we need to scout, we need to identify and then follow through with what herbicides are best for those weeds. Uh, the other thing is uh, timely seeding and really we find that uh, the month of August and early September is really the best time to think about getting that seeding done and too many people delay the seeding and then have failure because they don't allow enough time for those seedlings to uh, harden, if you will, for, for winter that is, is going to be happening. Um, this is also uh, a really good time for those that rotationally graze to take a paddock or two uh, that the livestock will not be on in the month of September and October and put a little bit of nitrogen fertilizer on it if we want to grow more forage. And essentially we call that stockpiling forage, saving it for uh, a later time use. Mm -hmm. And this is really a, a good practice to be considering in uh, late August and early September to put that nitrogen on and, and grow the forage for a couple of months uh, for grazing later. And lastly, um, you know, we're thinking about uh, the opportunity of uh, broadcasting cover crops and you know things that really work pretty well are small grains like cereal rye or winter wheat and also then brassicas which include uh, the forage turnips work yeah. extremely extremely well. Um, so here we are uh, from the animal side of things what are some things that we should be considering for this month? Well I think we'd like I'd like to reiterate a point that you made okay on this low quality forage that that we've put up this year um, you know, it's really important that I think our producers test those forages so that they can develop a supplementation strategy. Well, we've actually had some uh, sampling that has occurred through our Purdue Ag Centers, and some of this has come back, frankly, as though it were straw yep. and not even yep. low-quality forage. Yep. I, mean, I mean, it's really low. And we've got, we've got forages that are all over the board. They might be decent in protein, right. but they're super low in energy. Uh, or vice versa. And, and it's going to be critical to figure out how to supplement these cows. Otherwise, if we don't plan ahead, we're going to, we run the risk of having a lot of really thin cows come next spring. Okay. And that's going to be, mean weak calves at birth. That's going to mean poor colostrum quality in, in those cows to pass on that immunity to those calves. And then we've got this whole issue of rebreeding these cows next spring. And uh, it's going to be critical, both for our fall calving and our spring calving cow herds, that they, uh, they start looking at that. Yeah. Uh, from the spring calving cow herd perspective, you know, weaning is just around the corner. And, and so we need to make sure that our calves are castrated, vaccinated, dehorned, uh, and, and healed from those surgical procedures before they go into the marketplace to avoid some pretty serious discounts. Okay. And, and to add more value, I think our producers need to be thinking about, you know, vaccination, deworming, and maybe even weaning for at least a minimum of 30 days uh, so that those calves go into the marketplace and they're, they're ready for the stresses that are going to take place as they transition, you know, as, they, as, as we have this transportation stress, but we also transition into new diets at new locations and commingling and all those things. And, you know, it's the right thing to do for these calves, uh, you know, from a health perspective. What about the cows? Well, in the cows, you know, uh, my, vaccinating cows, if you haven't already got that done, and, and making sure that your vaccination program for the cow herd is, is up, and don't forget the bulls, by the way, 
Um, and, the, and, of course, our spring calving cow herds, you know, I think our producers need to think about pregnancy checking, okay, and, and maybe um, earlier marketing of some of these cows. Because we normally see a drop in the market for cows. Uh, well, in feeder calves as well, as we go into that October, November, t- December time frame, and that's when everybody else is marketing their calves, okay. all right? And so if we could kind of shift our, our emphasis just a little bit forward uh, by, you know, preg checking and getting rid of some of those cows that are just not going to fit the operation, whether those are open cows or those aged cows or, you know, maybe there's some lameness issues or right. whatever. For our fall calving producers, I think it's time to start thinking about calving, all right? Uh, and one of the things that uh, that producers need to understand is that we've come through some pretty hot weather here this, this yes, summer. Yes, we have. And if that heat could persist right up until those fall calving cows start to calve, expect those cows to calve a little bit earlier, hmm. okay? Up, up to maybe two weeks early, oh, wow. all right? And it's all... A metabolic kind of a relationship and that heat stress basically shortens up the gestation length and so we can have some calves come early and so that's just kind of an awareness for our producers. Um, now is also a good time for our cal- fall calving producers to start thinking about the breeding season because that isn't going to be too sure, far behind right. the calving season and so start thinking about getting your your bulls ready uh, it's thinking about doing, you know, breeding soundness evaluations on the bulls and getting your AI supplies and estrus synchronization supplies if that's what you choose to do. So I think those are some of the key points that I guess I'd like to talk about for this month coming up. Excellent, Ron. Uh, this does conclude our monthly timely production and management tips. In this segment, we're going to talk about the consumer and what drives consumer demand and, and how, do we, how do we facilitate that. So what I've done is I've asked Dr. Jenny Hodgins. She's the IBCA Beef Promotion Committee Chair, a trained meat scientist, and a beef producer from Rochdale, Indiana. Jenny, let's, let's start out this discussion by talking about you've had a pretty busy year as a group okay, but- in terms of help promoting beef. The promotions chair has been busy. Um, as you're all aware, we're not the biggest beef producing state, so we try to be very judicious in how we use our funds um, using both traditional methods as well as some of the modern ways we have of communicating with consumers and interacting with them. So some of the traditional things that we've done, hopefully you've seen our billboards around in Annapolis, especially during the holiday season. Um, we've done some very tasty build promotions up in the um, northeast and um, some of my favorite ones would be are the um, classroom activities that the staff does and any area producers that are in the area going and talking to biology classes, home ec classes, science classes about the environment um, as well as the nutritional aspect of beef and of course how to make awesome products out of our and this is at the junior high and high school level. At the right? junior high and high school level. Um, and then we've done some really cool activities that um, bringing um, key influencers out to farms and ranches. So this year we had culinary and dietitians out to some farms and they got to interact with producers, with people from the Board of Health. Um, we cut up meat for them. We talked about different recipes and um, 
And I think from that one, we also learned as producers that um, the environment is a big hot button, and so continuing to focus more efforts in that area. So how does this all get funded? Okay, what it, is it not the checkoff dollars? Right, so um, the, the money that we use for our beef promotions would come from the beef checkoff. So that dollar that you um, give when you sell any animal, um, half of it goes to the federal level and half of it stays here in Indiana to allow us to do more of these programs, um, which is great because when I sell my 50 head next spring, um, I could do a little bit of promotion with $50, but it's not nearly as meaningful if I give my $50 and we pull it with your $50 and we pull it. And so we can do a lot more activities and be much more powerful and, and um, promoting beef and talking about all the great things um, health-wise as well as environmental-wise for. This month's Dr. Ron question really deals with the little black seeds or what appears to be a black seed in some of our pasture and hay grasses. To answer that question, I've asked Dr. Keith Johnson to join me. Keith, you've been scouting pastures around the, the state all season long. What are you seeing? Well, what I'm seeing is that because of delayed harvest due to rains and advanced plant maturity, uh, this has resulted in seed heads in the majority of our first cutting haze. And what I'm seeing in those seed heads is ergot uh, in cool season grasses like uh, orchard grass, tall fescue, smooth brome grass, rye grass, and quack grass. Uh, ergot is a fungal disease that typically occurs when we have a wet, cool spring that's followed by warm temperatures, just like we've had this spring and early summer. Because weather conditions delayed the first cutting of the hay harvest, we have a lot of seed presence in our first cutting hay. And uh, as a result, uh, if ergot is present in these seed heads, this can really be a concern. So, so how do I know if I've got ergot in my forages? Well, we need to use visual inspection. So to, to evaluate the presence, we need to go to you know, our hay and take it out and look for the evidence of dark brown, purple or blackish kind of bodies that look like uh, similarly to elongated mouse droppings. Uh, essentially they will be, as you stated, in a, in a spot that looks like uh, it's where a seed ought to form. Uh, these dark colored bodies, the ergot uh, sclerotia as we call them, are actually larger than the typical seed usually. Uh, it does invade during that wet and cool years during pollination time, and this fungus contains alkaloids that can cause symptoms similar to fescue toxicosis, which you know isn't a good thing. It should be noted that the alkaloids are only uh, located in the seed head, and with that late hay harvest that has occurred this season, this will increase the potential for higher levels of ergot concentrations in our cool season grasses hay uh, where infestation has occurred. So how, how does this ergot affect the animal? Well, the ergot alkaloids are cumulative. So we could have an animal that takes a large dose over a short period of time and create the symptoms, or you could have kind of that prolonged lower level of exposure. And the ergot alkaloids kind of have two distinct system, uh, syndromes. The first one is where we get vasodilation, uh, actually, excuse me, vasoconstriction, 
okay, of, of blood vessels. And, and the first symptoms of that vasoconstriction would then really occur in the form of lameness. All right, and it can happen two to four weeks after the exposure. We tend to see a drop in milk production. Um, that's going to obviously affect calf performance. Uh, and in the advanced stages, we can get complete blockage of some of these blood vessels, and we get a gangrene effect. Wow. All right, so you mentioned the fescue toxicosis. Right. So we we talk about fescue foot and and sloughing of hooves and and uh, ears and maybe even tails. And so the second part of that system is really about that's affecting the central nervous system. And so we can get animals that are hyperexcitable, we can get convulsions, and ultimately we can get death. So uh, I should point out that, that the ergot alkaloids are additive to the fescue alkaloids. Okay, so if we've got dirty fescue, we can have a cumulative effect, and that becomes more of a challenge, as well as really hot weather and really cold weather. Uh, and of course, in that circulation effect. Okay. So, what can we do to treat ergot toxicity? Well, currently, there's no treatments. Okay, no antidotes for um, the alkaloids that present in, in ergot. So, uh, if symptoms occur, producers really only have the recourse of being taking that feed away and, and replacing it with a with a feed that does not have those alkaloids. Okay. Most of the alkaloid-infected uh, hays are probably going to be very mature this year. Yes, okay? they will. So they got seed heads. And, and so it means it probably got low protein, low energy values. Supplementation then to meet the requirements will help us, okay, because it will cause a little bit of a dilution effect. Yes. But it's really important to, to note that supplementation does not eliminate the alkaloids. All right, they're still there. All we're doing is we're diluting it and maybe delaying some of the symptoms. Okay, so what can one do then in terms of having hay analyzed? Can that be done for the presence of the alkaloids? It, it can be, all right, but it's a different analysis than what we typically think of whenever we take a hay probe okay. sample for nutrient analysis. We're going to really need the entire plant, all right, seed head, leaves, stem, so we can really get at a concentration. And there is really no analysis that I can run on the animal, all right? So it's all got to be done on the forages. And so um, you need to probably take about a one-pound sample and okay. send it off to a, a commercial lab, which is probably different labs than what we typically send our nutrients analysis yes. off okay. to. And so Iowa State Veterinary Diagnostic Lab and University of Missouri's Diagnostic Lab both do these ergot analysis ergot alkaloid analysis and fescue alkaloid. My recommendation would be that if you have fescue, and particularly a dirty fescue, make sure that you, if you're going to have these analyzed, you do the ergot alkaloids plus the fescue alkaloids, right. and that's going to cost you about 100 bucks in okay. the neighborhood of $100 in those two labs. So for more information on the ergot topic, uh, we need to go to show notes, which are below this video, for more detail, and the sample submission forms are there as well. Upcoming beef-related programs and events include the Indiana Junior Beef Cattle Association Annual Banquet to be held Saturday, August 24th at the State Fairgrounds in the, in the Farm Bureau Building. 
RSVPs are needed by August 14th to the IBCA office. West Central Indiana Angus Field Day is going to be held Saturday, August 28th, and it will be held at the Purdue Animal Science Beef Research and Teaching Center. The first annual Indiana Junior Beef Cattle Association Field Day is going to be held Saturday, September 14th. The field day starts at 845 at the Boilermaker Butcher Block, located in Creighton Hall of Animal Science, followed by a football tailgate event at 2.30. RSVPs are needed by August 24th. Hoosier Beef Congress will be held December 6th through 8th. Sale entry deadline is October 15th, and the Junior Show entry deadline is November 1. Additional details of these events can be found in show notes below this video. If you have upcoming cattle events that you think would be of interest to beef producers, please send the dates and a brief description of the event to askdrron at purdue.edu. This presentation was a production of the Animal Science Department at Purdue University.